Hi, everybody. This is George, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is Chris from the Channel 83 podcast. How's it going, Chris? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, George? Pretty good. Pretty good. Now, this is our second crack at this, so in theory, <laughs> um, Yeah. this is uh, an infamous lost episode of The Best Little Horror House, but we both really, really loved the movie that we had talked about, so we gave it a little bit of time, and we're coming back to it so that we can still tell everyone about it. Now, I will say that both of the episodes that I've lost of this show have effects done by Rick Baker. So, <laughs> So I think that I have some kind of Rick Baker curse. <laughs> so I hope that this one goes well, but we need to be on the lookout for that. Yeah, I know those those lost ones. It'll just be like the day the clown cried for <laughs> <laughs> Best Little Horror House. Exactly. And uh, Rick Baker, whatever I did to you to draw your ire, I apologize. You're you're a great effects artist, and I hope that you uh, take pity on me and stop destroying my recordings. <laughs> <laughs> So, Chris, tell us about your history with horror. You have your own horror podcast, like I mentioned, Gen Lady 3. I so, do. obviously, this is something that you're passionate about. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into the genre? So, I've pretty much been into horror my entire life. You know, I had some pretty conservative parents that growing up that didn't allow anything like horror movies, at least when I was really young. You know, once I hit around the age of nine, they kind of stopped caring and <laughs> we became latchkey kids. So, uh, but before that, you know, I would go over to my cousin's house and their parents would let them do whatever they wanted. So, you know, that was free reign at the video store to, uh, rent whatever sort of straight to video trash was out there. And, um, I guess, you know, oddly the most nostalgic horror series for me would be puppet master. Um, I know a lot of people probably don't think that that's great, but, you know, as a child growing up in the 90s, that, that was it right there. Yeah, I mean, it's a tale as old as time as far as I'm concerned. You get the, the people who try and stop you from exploring an interest, and that only makes you more interested in it. So people who have a similar kind of upbringing always find a way, like you, to go to a cousin's house and watch it or have a friend at school who they talk about it with. And so it's really interesting that horror has this kind of anti-authoritarian bent to it by virtue of what it is. And I think that that really comes across in a lot of the people who are not just into horror, but also who create horror movies. I mean, we're talking about Larry Cohen's movie, It's Alive, today. Mm -hmm. And Larry Cohen is my number one guy in terms of hating a horror <laughs> Yeah, it's it's hard to do any better than him. I really, maybe if I sat here and thought about it, I could come up with something better, but I just, he's the one that springs to mind. Do you have a favorite subgenre within horror that you find yourself going back to more often than others? So definitely creature features, I think, would be my number one thing. Um, when it comes to supernatural ghost type stuff, I'm I'm really not into that. I only have so much patience for it. And so... You know, one of the one of the things you and I had an exchange about recently was Gretel and Hansel. While I don't think that's a, a bad movie, it's a type of movie that I only have so much patience for. You know, I can I like the the very best of those, but below that, not really. Whereas something like slashers or creature features, you know, give me anything in those subgenres and I'll probably think it's at least okay. Like I said, we're talking about the Larry Cohen movie, It's Alive Today. This movie was released in 1974, but was filmed and edited simultaneously with another Larry Cohen feature, Hell Up in Harlem, which was shot on the weekends during the production of It's Alive. They made this movie for about $500,000. So, you know, very, very low budget, even for them. Mm -hmm. Larry Cohen's output is remarkable. I mean, between his first movie in 1972, which is the movie Bone, and 1990, there were only five years where he didn't direct a movie. And to make up for that, he doubled up in 73, 81, 84, and did three in 87. So literally, it evens out to the point where he might as well have made a movie every single year between 1972 and 1990. That's pretty impressive. It, I think that it's obvious when you find these lower budget auteurs who, like I said, this is written, directed, and produced by him. So when you find someone who has this much passion for it, they find work. They find ways to keep working on horror. And, and I mean, I think that that's very evident in Larry Cohen's uh, filmography. He clearly had a passion. He had a lot of stuff to say. 
and uh, and he did a great job with it. When we last spoke, I had seen three of Larry Cohen. <laughs> Hugh the Winged Serpent, this movie, It's Alive, and The Stuff. I have now watched Maniac Cop, which he didn't direct, but he did write. And his focus on social commentary persists throughout. Oh, yeah. One of the first discussions that we had um, via Twitter was actually a discussion about how John Carpenter, Stuart Gordon, Frank Hannenlotter, and even uh, with a sci-fi bent, Paul Verhoeven, all have kind of a similar vibe to Larry Cohen. Yes. They're great storytellers with a penchant for practical effects, a B-movie aesthetic, and heavy theming slash commentary. So I'm wondering if this is something you're drawn to in addition to the fact that they uh, typically have some sort of creature in their, in their movies. Is it uh, that aesthetic and that commentary kind of thing? Is that something that you're drawn to as well? Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's why I love this movie in particular. I mean, I like anyone can enjoy a movie with just my reptilian brain, just watching cool stuff happen on screen. But what really drives it home is, is the commentary in this one. And also, you know, just, the amount of sincerity that this movie was made with. Yeah, I think that that is a really overlooked aspect of what makes a good horror movie good, despite the fact that it maybe is lower budget, and it's the heart that goes into it. Any cynical movie that's made to make money, it's going to be obvious. Like There will just be yeah. little corners cut in a way that they don't do it on movies where they're really passionate about what they're doing. And I think that all of these guys have that sort of passion where they're like, this is a story that I need to tell because I need to communicate something. And so this group of directors who most of them kind of rose to prominence in the mid to late 80s, I think that to me, they definitely drew some kind of inspiration from uh, Larry Cohen in sort of a velvet underground of indie horror uh, your favorite low budget horror director's favorite low budget horror director. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, he, I guess is, I mean, he's a little bit older than them. So he kind of started in this, this in between phase where, you know, before him, it was Hitchcock and things like that. And then shortly after him, the ones that you listed along with him, that's when they came to prominence. So really for, I think this period of time, like the early to mid seventies, He's kind of the only one doing this sort of thing at that specific time. A real innovator, definitely ahead of the curve. And luckily for him, his special effects for this movie were done by Rick Baker, famous for Videodrome and American Werewolf in London, The Howling. He also did some work on Empire Strikes Back. And he is just an insanely talented special effects guy. Yes. He does such a good job using shadow, using the actual effects. I mean, for this, Larry Cohen literally drew a, a picture of what he wanted to Rick Baker. And Rick Baker was like, uh, this just has an oversized forehead with like pulsating veins. Let's compare <laughs> uh, the star child from 2001, A Space Odyssey with a wolf and see. <laughs> so having somebody with this kind of innovative special effects to be able to capture the social commentary and great storytelling of Larry Cohen. I mean, this is really sort of an awesome Venn diagram of all the aspects kind of lining up exactly as we needed them to in order for it to create the best horror movie ever made. Yes. I also, I'm fascinated by opening credits, which have sort of vanished these days. Somebody mentioned that they were literally required at one point. Yes, that's correct. That definitely plays a huge role in it, but hopefully they're coming back a little more into vogue because they are so great at being just like a vague tone setter. <laughs> like, this is what I love about opening credits. And It's Alive has a really spectacular opening credits. Yes, it does. It's these cool and sort of like, it's just lights moving around and getting more and more frantic as they move around the screen. And what's really neat about it is that it doesn't mean anything to you at the beginning of the movie, but as you watch it, eventually you reach a point in the movie where it clicks and you're like, Oh, I understand what this intro was. Yeah. I, I love that too. I also am a big fan of opening title sequences. Um, and what's interesting and what we didn't mention is that this title sequence is set to a score by the legendary Bernard Herman. I, I think this was his second to last score that he did. I think taxi driver may have been the last one. And uh, Larry Cohen had this, filmed and he went to go to sh show it to bernard herman and it just so happened that 
the two synced up perfectly. Like the movement of the lights syncs up with the music cues. That's awesome. I mean, it's just another example of him being able to collaborate with someone and knowing who the right people are to bring on to his project. I mean, they say a good leader knows how to delegate. <laughs> Definitely uh, the case here with, uh, with Larry Kellen. I, I feel like he, he was probably like pretty talented at social engineering as well. And, and like the way he got like such big names, well, I guess Rick Baker was kind of starting out, but Bernard Herman was already, you know, top echelon of composers. And somehow this, you know, scrappy little independent filmmaker from New York convinced him to do the score to a movie about a uh, mutant killer baby. Yeah. All you had to do was say, hey, I'm directing here. <laughs> it's funny because so many of Larry Cohen's movies take place in New York, where he's from. Yep. But It's Alive takes place in L.A. And contrary to a lot of ways that New York, the city that never sleeps, they say. <laughs> so yep. There's usually when you open up on a movie in New York, you get all this beeping and honking and people yelling and all like it's just noise. It's so much noise. but. Mm -hmm. It's Alive has a very gentle opening. Lenore Davis, who's played by Shannon Farrell, wakes up and uh, tells Frank, played by John Ryan, that it's time. And they smooch and they slowly walk to the bathroom and he picks out some clothes. And she says, hey, Frank, you better go wake up Chris, who's snuggling with their cat. <laughs> and like, It's just so the opposite of what you expect from a movie that opens up in New York, which is so part and parcel of what I expect from a Larry Cohen movie. And so seeing him this early in his career, being able to like still explore the, the, the opening. And this is not to say that his New York openings are not great, but you know, you kind of get locked into a, a pattern that works for you. Mm -hmm. and so when he does something different like this, I think that it's really, um, it's really interesting and it helps to create this sort of relaxed environment that helps to make it that much more effective when things start to pop off later. Yeah. It's, it's really disarming and almost like kind of awkward. And like, you're like, why are they being so super casual about this? But hmm. you know, last time when we talked about it, I got to thinking and it's really like, it's actually really necessary that, this opening is like this, not only for the reason you stated, but this is also the only time we get to see the Davises be normal because pretty soon, you know, an event happens and we get to see them reacting to that event. So this is the only normalcy we have with which to compare their reactions later on. Yeah. And I think that it's also really important because it shows that Frank can be a good father. Um, we see him have a very charming father-son relationship chat with his son about his son is scared that his mom is going to die in childbirth. We find out that it is a pregnancy thing. And Frank is there assuaging those fears. And he does, I think, a very nice job of playing the father role here. Yeah, it's a very... They leave Chris with a family friend and they go to the hospital. And Lenore is in labor and she says, it feels like it's different. And... I know that we hit this last time too, but man, simplicity is key in communication. With mm -hmm. you. And boy, this does such a great job of that. Yeah. And there's also this one scene like right before that, where he's, he's getting dressed to go to see his wife where they're talking about, he's like looking at the babies that have just been born. And he, there's just like this really nice quiet scene where he's talking about the wee cuddies and the wee cubs. <laughs> and has like an exchange with one of the nurses like oh you're gaelic i'm scottish and all this and that that's to me is like a very small but signature cohen moment just to have what appears to be something that was probably ad-libbed by the two actors in that scene yeah I, I definitely agree with that and frank gets to have a bunch of fun conversations here lenore goes off into the into the labor room but frank heads to the waiting room where he joins other dads in a conversation about <laughs> everyone's eating lead and the earth is polluted and we shouldn't bring kids into this world. And I'm sitting there like, thank goodness things have changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they've changed in that there's not just like a, a room where men are sequestered off while their women give birth. So yeah. at least that part has changed. <laughs> and yeah, that's one thing to mention is that this movie is seventies as hell. 
in so many ways, just like the leisure suits and the, the polyester shirts. It's a, it's yeah. a production design though. I, I mean, like it's a great aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, it is. And that scene I think is, it's one of the most important scenes in the movie because they're, they're talking about, you know, one of them just brings that up because he gives someone a pencil to stir his coffee with. And he's like, Oh, there's lead in everything we eat these days. You know, and then someone's like, yo, you don't have to eat it. Just look at the smog outside. We breathe it in. And then one of them sort of like a, an exterminator, I guess. And he's talks about, you know, roach spray just created bigger roaches. And it's just a very, um, I don't know. It sets the stage for the sort of things that this movie is going to touch on later. All of these men are here to have a kid. for them all to feel this way and to be so scared about the environment that they're bringing this life into, I think is very representative of the movie at large. Yeah, definitely. Labor is going poorly for Lenore (laughs) is apparently between 10 and 11 pounds, according to the doctor with a huge head. Yes. With a huge head. And um, he's born deformed with fangs and claws, although you don't see it right away. And I was suspicious about their lack of foreknowledge, but apparently ultrasounds didn't become common in the U.S. until the late 1970s. So there's your non-horror fun fact for the day. (laughs) And immediately after birth, one of the doctors attempts to suffocate the child, but it kills all the doctors and nurses and then flees through a skylight. (laughs) Just immediately just goes off the rails. (laughs) Like this baby murders a room full of people and manages to get up through a skylight (laughs) really just spectacular uh imagination there like it's a great way to avoid figuring out how to actually pull like a baby out of a lady because the doctor is like all right 30 seconds and then we cut to frank just seeing a doctor stagger out from behind the doors just covered in blood and collapse and and then yeah you get a nice 70s snap zoom to his face the music swells up and he starts running towards the uh delivery room and it, this does such a really great job of not only making it so that we don't have to see like they don't have to worry about budgeting effects for this scene really but it also does a great job of putting us in frank's shoes where we get the same sudden shock that he does it's really a great way of making us empathize with him where we're finding out information at the same exact time as he is yeah and then so he he runs into the delivery room and it's just absolute carnage yeah, corpses and blood everywhere. <laughs> and his wife is screaming, what's wrong with my baby? She says, where's the baby and what does it look like? Those, like, those are her two main questions. And so anytime someone is like, what does my baby look like? And then you're just in a room full of corpses, probably not a great situation. <laughs> Frank thinks that they stole the baby. <laughs> and the doctor who followed Frank into the room says that the umbilical cord looks like it was chewed off. Yeah. just. Nobody has any idea what's happening at this point. (laughs) And they're questioned by police before being allowed to leave, which this is exactly what I was talking about before. Larry Cohen has a supremely healthy distrust of authority. This cop (laughs) is immediately a shithead. Yes. (laughs) And I mean, it reminds me of the crazy army guy in the stuff and the monologue in Cue the Winged Serpent about Michael Moriarty's character keep getting Mm -hmm. down. I mean, in Maniac Cop. The police force is entirely corrupt. And then even the guy who tries to fight that corruption, the cop uh, who tries to stop that, is notorious for police brutality and killing criminals. So even the good authority figures in Larry Cohen movies are abhorrent to people. Yeah. And I think, man, I wouldn't say that there are good authority figures in this one. No, I, I wouldn't either. I mean, this extends throughout the entire movie, too, not just this one cop. He gets a parking t- parking ticket at the hospital, and on the drive, you know, you get the media as an authority who talks not only about the kid as a mutant, but literally names Mr. and Mrs. Frank Davis as the parents and say where they're from, which leads to his shitty boss firing him. And it just all <laughs> from these points of authority who have no pity, no sympathy, no empathy. It's very, very timely. Yeah. And because I think, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade was the year before this. And while they're at the hospital being questioned, the cop says, you know, or maybe it was a doctor. They're 
asking you, you inquired about abortion and Frank's like, uh, well, doesn't everybody, you know, we talked about it and we decided to have it. And the cop just immediately says, we all make mistakes. And then he immediately apologizes for it. But, you know, he's still a shithead. Absolutely. And I mean, you get this kind of questioning. It's really invasive. It's really intense. Poor Lenore just had a baby. <laughs> and there's a really great hold on Lenore where Frank closes the partition and says goodnight and the shot just like lingers on her for a little bit. And it really does a great job of driving home her isolation and fear that she's feeling at this point. Just a really nice shot that I definitely want to call out. Well, you're on your own now. I am separating myself from you and I'm going to deal with this with this in my own way. There's also a really nice shot of Frank dealing with it in his own way, as you say, where he's walking into the home after he gets back. And there's a, the, he's hesitating in the doorway of the nursery, just kind of looking in on it. And, but he doesn't actually go into the room. And so kind of lingering on the border like that, I think it says a lot about kind of his state of mind, his readiness to be a parent overall. You know, there's a lot to kind of dig into with just the visual language of this movie. Yeah. And they did mention earlier uh, that maybe Frank had some reservations about having this child and also having the child that is now like 10 years old earlier. Right. The next morning, we get an attack on a jogger, and it's POV except for one little glimpse. And it's a really great use of don't show the monster, which is, I, listen, I mean, you people who listen to the show regularly have probably heard me say both ways, but I, I love when you see a monster the whole time when they're really confident in it. But I also really love when, even if it is a great looking monster like this one is, when they hold back and they really let the suspense build and it not only helps to build tension and fear, but it also helps to avoid budgetary constraints. So this is a huge issue for a lot of classic horror, especially creature features, which I mean, it's uh, a baby, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I think that they do a really nice job of this POV attack on a jogger. And this is when Frank gets fired by his boss because Frank works at a PR firm. And his boss disguises it as forced into sabbatical until the heat around him dies down. Mm -hmm. Scummy enough. But he also has Frank's desk cleared out and has his personal stuff sent to his house because, quote, he won't be coming back. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's just awful. This, this, you really feel bad for Frank. I mean, none of this is in his control, although he does feel responsible and his boss is treating him like their best buds. And he's like, Hey Frank, come in here. We got to have a chat. We got to have a chat. And like, clearly they're on good terms, but none of that matters because there's negative press around their, their job. And so he's like, all right, you gotta go, man. Yeah. And he goes in there and he says, you know, he's sort of lamenting about what happens saying Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to behave. And it's brought up that, you know, maybe when is, when this baby's dead, maybe then I can come back to work. And his boss says like, well, maybe it already is. And then, you know, Frank's demeanor changes just very subtly at that moment. And you see just a sadness in his face. And then, as you said, he he gets shit canned behind his back. And, uh, you know, it's just a really, it's a very sad situation for everyone involved. Yeah. And I mean, Frank is just getting assaulted on all sides by this. Like it's understandable why he's being harassed by the media. He's being uh, interrogated by the police. People are dying. And so when he starts distancing himself, when he's uh, on his way out of the office and the media is attacking him, you know, it makes sense why he's distancing himself saying things like uh, the kid is a monstrosity. I don't have anything to say. I don't know what it looks like. The one that I found the most interesting is when he says, I didn't have anything to do with this. It's like, well, uh, you did, Frank. Takes two to tango. <laughs> and that kind of recoiling and pushing away, I think, is probably our one of, one of the most intense social commentary aspects of this movie, where Frank's fear of parenthood really is visible in this in these moments. Um, like you said, Lenore mentioned earlier that Frank felt trapped the first time, and. Frank is, he's distant. He, the doctor and the cops say that they might need to kill it like an animal when they find it. And Frank just shrugs and says, do what you have to do. Yeah, I don't care. 
yeah, it's this distress that he's in is really palpable. Like you can just feel it emanating off of him. Yeah. And you know, it's an interesting thing. I think he's, he's just playing the, the typical role of what, what a man is supposed to be, or at least maybe what a seventies man is supposed to be, you know, he's distancing himself saying, I don't care, do what you have to do, all that sort of stuff. And he probably in these situations when there's not someone that's easy to blame, unfortunately the blame usually falls on the parents, even though it's not their fault at all in this instance. But I think he, you know, he pushes back so that to take that sort of blame and finger pointing away from him. At this point, Frank is like dead inside. It feels like. Yeah. He's on the phone arranging for his son to stay with the other family. And it's just such a great performance when he says, Thanks, Chuck. (laughs) It's so monotone and dull. I mean, we get some more conversation from the cops. Uh, They're talking over the corpse of another, of the woman from the previous morning. And Mm -hmm. talk about how lucky people without kids are. And I really think that Larry Cohen hates kids. (laughs) Well, I I don't think he hates kids. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't say that strongly. Interestingly enough, he, he came up with this idea for this movie by watching his own son um, and just seeing the id and the rage that is a baby. But I think that scene you're talking about where they're just like, you know, everyone that you're lucky not to have kids. I think for me, that kind of goes back to when the guy's talking about roaches and how, you know, trying to kill the roaches just breeds stronger roaches. And basically everyone in the, in the world of it's alive is very hostile to children or the idea of children or giving birth, whether it's the cops, some scientists, or Frank himself. So I kind of like that idea that maybe the reason that this baby is the way that it is is because it's being born into a world that is so hostile to children that evolution or whatever, it just had to be stronger to survive. Uh, Yeah, that's what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) no i I think that that's a really great point i think that it makes a lot of sense the doctor sent home some nurses to take care of lenore and there's a nurse there inquiring about the baby and then telling her that there was another body this woman who died and it's like you're like wow this is so so messed up this is the rudest nurse ever why is she doing this yeah uh, of course she was actually a reporter on the side you know shaking my head man uh, can't, can't trust the media. In nope. fact, Frank says we should have known better than to trust anybody. And he get, we get one of those great scenes of, I don't know how actors can do this, but just the single tear on command. <laughs> <laughs> I am always impressed by that. And we get one of those right here. Oh, we sure do. And he destroys the tape and then fires all the nurses just in case to insulate themselves even further. So we get another kill. And uh, we only half see the baby as it's stalking the milk truck, this time covered in foliage, the the baby. But what we see is very unsettling. You know, like I said, it's got this big bulbous head and these veins that are that are popping out. And it's stalking this milk truck. And he's strong enough to fully lift the milkman off the ground and hold him <laughs> as he eats him. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a funny image, but it's also like, good Lord. This baby is in, intense. Yeah, this baby is yoked. <laughs> it's it's all the milk that he just got. Milk. <laughs> and yeah, there's actually a really good documentary about Larry Cohen called uh, King Cohen. And in that he, he compares, he likens this scene to the shower scene in Psycho. <laughs> so he was, he was very proud of the, the baby milk truck killing scene. Hey, honestly, I get it. There's a really great visual as the blood mixes with the milk, the red and the white. Really, it's a very striking image. Um, So I I get it. Larry, you did great, man. (laughs) The manhunt, or I guess it's really more of a baby hunt. (laughs) There's a hilarious shot of two cops pointing a gun point blank at a baby. Yeah, just a regular ass baby. (laughs) And some medical examiners ask Frank if they'll give the body to the university to study. And he, re- he repeats that it's not his kid. He compares himself to Frankenstein, thinking that this is how he'll be remembered before he signs the paperwork and joins the hunt himself. And I mean, this idea of him being Frankenstein 
with the monster as his legacy, I think is really interesting, not only because, uh, sure, maybe that's true, but also, I mean, yeah, Dr. Frankenstein is the true monster here who abandoned after creating this monster. So I think that that's, uh, it's, I don't want to say heavy handed, but it's appropriate for them to be talking about Frankenstein. And I think that it really um, draws a really nice parallel. Yeah, um, I agree. You know, it, it borders on maybe being heavy handed uh, talking about Frankenstein in a movie called it's alive is <laughs> about as close as you can come to saying the title in the movie and winking at the camera without actually doing it. You know, it actually what? didn't, didn't click to me about the title. <laughs> well, yeah. So that's the, uh, James whale Frankenstein, I guess. I don't, I don't know if they actually say that in the book that it's alive. I'm pretty sure that it just comes from the movie, but still, no, it's, it's, uh, you're right. And I did truly didn't even click to me. that Those two are related as well. Well, um, then Larry Cohen did his job right there. Yeah, he sure did. And after this conversation about how he's Frankenstein and he's talking with these medical researchers, the doctor who prescribed the birth control drugs to Lenore in between their, or it's like fertility drugs. When they decide that they want yeah. to have the second kid, Lenore gets fertility drugs. And the doctor who prescribed them is contacted by another scumbag authority figure, this time a pharmaceutical company executive who acknowledges that the drugs may have caused the mutation. Mm-hmm. And he bribes the doctor with the promise of a board seat to destroy the body so that they don't get sued or lose market share. Yeah, I think he, he yeah. says absolute destruction of the body. It's such a, a downer look at the world, man. I mean, it's not that far off is the real issue here. Is that like, absolutely. I mean, I got, I just watched Dark Waters and, you know, these companies that cover these things up in order to save money at the expense of human lives are disgusting. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, in the 1970s, there was definitely this same sort of cynicism towards corporations that we have today but i think maybe back then it was i don't want to say unfounded but maybe you know companies were less transparent so i think it was it's sort of speculative on cohen's part but you know knowing what we know today about all the shit that corporations do pretty on the nose absolutely frank and the police chase the baby to the school that chris attends who by the way chris is still at the neighbor's house (laughs) (laughs) he's just he's just hanging out there and frank again emphasizes that distance saying that people are looking at him like it's his flesh and blood but it's not and he wants it destroyed as much as anybody else and i do believe that in the moment i do believe that frank wants it destroyed as much as anybody Uh, yeah the baby escapes and frank goes back home and lenore is really trying to keep it together here and she suggests bringing chris home and she does just such a great job with her body language here, creating an aura of stress. I mean, obviously her actual dialogue is very uh, like lackadaisical, but God, uh, she does such a great job here. And Frank is not having it. He says no, but the baby arrives at the Davis house and Lenore is so, you know, I mean, her hormones from the birth and the fact that her other son is still there and the stress of giving birth to this child who then immediately is taken slash leaves and is killing things. It's obvious that that would put a strain on anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To say the least. And so when this baby arrives and she is able to face it like a mother, that is a very powerful moment. And Lenore finding this comfort from this baby who is supposedly monstrous is it's a great performance it says a lot about the character lenore when she finds this baby and accepts it despite the way it looks and you know it's it's easy to see why she is driven to this point frank finds that a lot of milk (laughs) first of all they have an insane amount of milk second of all yeah there there is a scene that establishes earlier that they have a shitload of milk and a lot of meat in the fridge. More than is necessary for three people. But yes, he sees that a lot of the milk got drank, which causes him to get suspicious. And he asks Lenore if Chris came back. And <laughs> uh, Lenore really seems like she's losing her grip on reality here a little bit. Um, but she says no. And he calls the neighbor to ask if Chris is there, which makes Chris even more homesick. And so his attempt to make sure that Chris was still there winds up creating Chris uh, fleeing back home 
<laughs> with, yeah. with Charlie the neighbor in pursuit. I really feel I'm bad. I'm sure Chris. Frank just like hangs up on Chris. <laughs> That's right. He's talking to Charlie, the neighbor, and he's like, is Chris still there? And Charlie's like, yeah, he's right here. Do you want to talk to him? (laughs) He he gives the phone to Chris and Frank is just like, okay, bye, click. (laughs) Very funny. And I think that you're able to kind of see uh, him brush off Chris in a way that you're like, oh, we saw him being a good parent before, but it's also easy to see him being a bad parent and seeing that that is in everyone everyone has both sides where it's like when you're in the middle of this stressful situation and you have a child, maybe you should take a step back and think about them for a moment. (laughs) But yeah, I I feel bad for Chris here. And Frank discovers all the meat in the house is gone as well now, which like you said, they established there was plenty of it. He investigates the house and he thinks he sees something in the nursery, which is a very eerie scene. You want to talk about this a little bit? It's very, very creepy, right? Yeah, it it really is. So he he goes upstairs because now the jig is up. There's no way Chris drank all that milk and ate all that meat. So he <laughs> suspects that the baby might be there. He goes back to the nursery and he he slowly approaches the crib, rips off the blanket that's on top and nothing's there. We don't get you know what you would expect in a movie like this. Baby jump scare rips <laughs> rips Frank's throat out. But what does happen is that he he slowly puts his hand into the cradle or the crib and recoils because he feels that there's warmth there. So something was just in the in the crib. That moment really feels like in a worse movie, they would have given a cheap jump scare there. Either it would have been the kid or it would have been a fake out. It would have been the cat, let's be yeah, honest. Absolutely. <laughs> and but turns out that Lenore is actually hiding the baby in the basement. So it managed to get out of there and uh, it's, it's spooky stuff. Chris enters their house through the basement and Frank pulls out a gun and Lenore is like, why are you so eager to be the one to do it? Which I think is a really great question. I think that Frank feels like if he is the one who kills it, then that will redeem him in the eyes of his neighbors, his boss, the cops, the media, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the scenes, one of the three scenes where he's, you know, Chris was not apprehensive about the baby at all, much like Lenore. Once he saw it, you know, he sees it's different, but he's saying things like, I'm going to take care of you. Frank tries to shoot it and he explains to Chris, you know it's no relation to us chris it can't be i mean by the time we see this baby when frank is shooting at it it's almost an hour and 11 minutes in first time we get a good look at it yeah and you really still don't get to see all of it so he shoots at this baby and the baby flees and kills charlie on its way out (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, lenore and frank argue hysterically about the kid and he calls the cops while she brings chris upstairs and the cops and Frank go after the baby because Frank insists that he needs to be the one to do it. And he brings it back to Frankenstein, who felt that he needed to be the one to destroy his creation, where mm-hmm. it's about he, he still feels like he blames himself and he unleashed this on the world. But it's interesting that he feels this way after as far as he's been concerned, he's been presenting. It's not my kid. I have nothing to do with it. And so. For him to have clearly internalized this blame, I think is very true to life. Yeah, it really is. The manhunt follows the trail of blood from the gunshot wound that Frank uh, Frank winged the baby. <laughs> and it leads to the sewers, and the cops go in through the canals. This is where the lights, as they enter the canal, looks like the opening credits. It's yep. very cool. Really a neat way to handle that. And... It's not only like, hey, we have these vague lights that start to get more frantic. It's just a cool visual. It also is thematic. I mean, this is kind of the the coda of the movie here, where things are coming to a head. We have Frank at his lowest here. He's literally pursuing his own child that he shot to try and finish the job. And all of his fear and all of his anger have led to this moment. And so getting a little glimpse of that at the very beginning 
it's just very cool to me. Yeah, it, it's awesome. You know, you got the flashlights and the strobes of the police cars. It's just visually very great. The the flashing siren lights do these short bursts of illumination, and the kids like the kid is showing up between some cops. You're right. It's like it's just really cool. Frank hears the baby, and he leaves his post to follow it, and finds him screaming in pain from being shot. Understandably. <laughs> yeah. He feels bad and starts crying, and he admits that he was just scared, like the baby is now. And boy, this scene is so great. Finally, we get let in, and this rock-solid exterior that Frank had built up where nothing affected him, and it wasn't his kid, and he didn't care. Finally, it's all become too much for him, and he breaks down, and he's crying. And we, this monologue that he gives to the kid while he's trying to comfort it is just heart-wrenching. Yeah, I mean, this is a great acting from John P. Ryan, and it's it's the slipping of the mask scene, as it were. A lot of people I've seen, you know, they think it's so weird because Frank is like basically just a piece of shit for an hour and 20 minutes of the movie. And they think, oh, why is he just he all of a sudden has a change of heart. But I don't know. It, do you see it as a change of heart or maybe no, he just definitely not? He's finally revealing how he's felt and he. He's facing the music because it's right in front of his face. He has no choice but to let his guard down. Yeah, he has, he's forced to confront not only his child, but also the fact that he shot him. This is He's the reason why his, his child is crying. And for so many people, I know that they're like, oh, I, I would never want to do anything to cause my, my child harm or to make them feel bad in any way. And, you know, for him to have been so focused on the negative emotions. Like he never got to be like, yes, I have another child. This is great. Me and my wife who I love get to welcome another person into our family. And he might have felt trapped previously, but I think that he might have been really looking forward to this and, you know, having to deal with all these authority figures on top of the fact that his child is missing and also a murderer. <laughs> I, I do think that it's not a change of heart at all to me. I think that this is finally just him acknowledging what he had been trying to bury. Yeah. And like you said, nobody wants to bring harm to their child, but up until this point, he's never seen it as his child or never accepted it as his child. And I think, you know, it's the first time he gets to look at it, period, not really even just as anything like, yeah, the first time he's getting a full clear look at it. Yeah. And so this calls back to some of the things that they spoke about earlier in the movie about, you know, abortion. Doesn't everyone inquire about that, this, that, and the other. And the, the thing I really like about this movie is that it doesn't, take a simplistic view of this very difficult issue. I don't really think it's pro or anti-abortion. I really see it more as just opening a dialogue for things that we're not really allowed to ever vocalize or talk about. I think anyone that has a kid, um, I'll just say I don't have kids, so this is speculative on my part, but I think anyone that is going to have kids has the sort of questions that are addressed in this and everyone's going to be reluctant, but you're not really allowed to say that you're only allowed to be overjoyed about having kids or people will look at you like you are a monster. So I think this is sort of like, it's saying, you know, just because you are a reluctant parent at first, just because you have these questions about your ability to parent or whether or not you even want to be one doesn't mean that when the time comes, comes you can't also be a good parent yeah i think you hit the nail on the head there and on top of all of that great thematic acting that we're getting here the score is also fantastic in this <laughs> very heavy on the theremin of all things <laughs> frank flees with the kid uh, with the police in hot pursuit and he's cornered outside the canal and he begs them not to kill it he says lock it up study it but he's wounded he can't hurt anything and the cops have just held like they have so much anger it's killed people they've wasted time and resources pursuing it they insist that it's going to die here and now the baby who's been squirming and flailing the whole time in a blanket or i guess it's it's in his jacket i think yeah jumps out at one of the detectives who wanted to kill it again you're, you mentioned earlier how the world is so insanely hostile to kids <laughs> and 
the baby gets a little bit of love. It wasn't killing Frank. And, you know, he, he goes outside and people immediately again start trying to want to kill it. So it jumps out to defend itself and he kills the detective, but a hail of bullets rain down on him. <laughs> it's like really, you know, I understand that we've seen this baby kill a lot of people and has the strength to pick up a full grown man, but also <laughs> it feels excessive. Yeah. And Frank just looks on in sorrow and comforts his wife. And they get into the cop car to get driven home. But on the way home, the cop gets a call on the radio and very dramatically takes it on the private line. (laughs) And he hangs up and he reveals another one's been born in Chicago. Dun, dun, dun. Perfect setup for a sequel. (laughs) Man, it's great. It's just really great. It's a great ending that perfectly caps off a great movie that feels very short like the pacing of this movie is just so great it it, it's over before you know it and i wouldn't change anything because it's so perfect but also i'm like man i could definitely use more of this (laughs) and and larry cohen does a great job with it here and that's such it's so hard to you know stick the landing yeah i mean for me that was one of my like the greatest things about growing up was just sort of what you said like the anticipation of things coming out especially you think back to 1974 you know they don't have the internet so you get what four years of just wondering what's going to happen with this baby in seattle i mean we pointed out all the things that make this movie great it has some really awesome messaging and everything but we reached the point of the show now chris where we sum up why this is the best horror movie ever made so i'll let you start us off that's a hard question to answer so for me The reason that It's Alive is the best horror movie ever made, there's a lot of reasons. It's a creature feature. I love creature features. It has a message. I love that too. And as I mentioned at the beginning, it's done with a certain amount of sincerity. And basically what I mean by that is that, so this is a movie about a killer baby, basically, but it couldn't be made today in the same way. And in fact, if you've seen the remake of this movie, you definitely know it couldn't be done today because no remake. There was no <laughs> people. You just in 2020, you just could not make a movie about a killer baby in Los Angeles without a wink at the audience, without a sense of irony. This doesn't really have an ounce of that. And that's part of why I love it so much. On top of that, You've got immense talent behind it. You've got Larry Cohen writing and directing. You've got Bernard Herrmann's score. You've got the legendary Rick Baker. I mean, what else is there to say about this? Yeah, I I think that you're right. And we didn't talk about the sincerity of the movie, but I agree that it is a major plus. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love irony. Hollywood Handbook, one of my favorite podcasts. (laughs) But there's something about a movie, especially a monster movie, that fully commits to the world that it's built yeah i mean that's just that's something i love and there's this movie and i think about movies like chud or just these things that are ridiculous by their very nature but they don't feel that way when they're done with love care and sincerity to bring it back to that group of directors from before i mean you look at basket case especially that first one done very straight faced Mm -hmm. so so i think that that really not only lets you take it more seriously as a viewer but it means that you don't have to sift past that when you're like looking at themes and stuff like that so it really lends itself to analysis in a way that some of these more ironic things perhaps don't yeah i mean if if the person making the film isn't really taking ser- taking it seriously. It's hard for us as the audience to, at least that's sort of my opinion on it. Yeah. To me, on top of that, this is the best horror movie ever made because it has a really interesting message that rings even more true today with the world on fire. I mean, yeah. it has a lot for you to think about. Like you said, it does the feeling of reluctance and and being nervous about something, but taking the leap anyway. And I think that that's really great. I also love that Larry Cohen uses actors who feel like real people. They're handsomely average. And it lends an air of realism to his movies that I I think play right into that sincerity that we were talking about. It helps to make the world feel lived in and real. It's hard for something like Fight Club to be like, oh, Brad Pitt is telling me that, oh, they want us all to look like 
uh, actors and movie stars. And it's like, you do, Brad. The exemplary actor. Yeah, but when you have uh, uh, this guy who looks like he could be my neighbor <laughs> be like uh, having this, this issue, it really makes you feel so much more for him. It examines the human experience and has something to say about parenting and familial relationships that's universal. That to me, just the fact that it was able to do that and maintain a low budget and use practical effects, both things that I admire. That's that's what makes it the best horror movie to me. I mean, it's it's really a great job. Rick Baker doing the effects, Larry Cohen doing the uh, <laughs> doing the the writing and directing. It's just spectacular. Yeah, and I think you you really hit some, hit the nail on the head when you say it's it's more relevant today than it was because you would think this one you know they're coming out just to capitalize on what was a hot button issue back then and i'm glad that you've also seen maniac cop because i first saw those during the whole ferguson thing so watching maniac cop in that context made it feel extremely prescient just like this one feels today watching it with 2020 eyes yeah i think that's something that larry cohen does in a really spectacular way and i think that it's because unfortunately things have not really changed for the little guy and that is who larry cohen's movies focus on yes and so with that i think is a great place to end our conversation chris but it was fantastic i want to thank you for coming on not once but twice to talk about this movie with me. It's really a blast talking to you. You're one of the most insightful horror fans I know. So I really want to give you a chance to make your voice heard and tell the people where they can find more of you. Well, I appreciate the kind words and it's been an honor to be on your show twice. Um, Yeah, you can find us, uh, the Channel 83 podcast. uh, Channel83.video is the website. We're on all of the major podcast things. Follow us on Twitter at, at Channel83pod. That, that's all I got. For my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. You can find the show on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. There's a group on Facebook, the Best Little Horror Heads. And um, it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of good conversation in there about not just the episodes, but also things that are coming out. People get recommendations, that sort of thing. So check us out on there. That's pretty much it. And Chris, thanks again, man. This was great. Thank uh, you. Hi, everybody. 